church in the West, and when I say the West, I mean cultures and countries who have been influenced by Greco-Roman teaching and the Enlightenment. Now, I know this is, this is going to be a little bit of a history lesson this morning. You guys going to follow with me? Shake your head. All right. Come on with me now. We're going to look at um, how we arrive at our current cultural moment. So from the 40s and the 50s, the church in the West, particularly in America, was doing very well. The war taught people something very deep about humanity and about their need for God. The atrocities of war, the, the terrible nature of people in conflict with one another on a worldwide scale brought people back to God. So by the 60s, new cultural feelings, though, were beginning to appear and were beginning to take shape. From Martin Luther King Jr. to Billy Graham, the church was uh, a respectable institution because it entered into the culture and spoke to the climate of the day with change and with action. So respectable was the church and uh, an institution that people thought of enough that there were popular songs like Spirit in the Sky. Here's what I'm talking about. Amen on that one. Lean on me, Bill Withers. Come on. Uh, what about the influential uh, musicals like Godspell, Day by Day? You guys know that song? The kids in the room are like, what are you talking about right now? <laughs> Y'all might think I'm a kid in the room. and I'm, you, Anyways, I know what I'm talking about. All right, I'm cultured. Uh, uh, also, uh, what, what about the other musical, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar? Right, there's a lot of cultural um, credence given to the Christian faith. Through the 60s and the 70s, Christianity is still a respectable lifestyle option for people. Now, by the 70s, that influence was solidified. However, the West was entering into what one author calls the me decade. The new belief was the truth was not to be found in class struggle or political consciousness, but rather in a journey into self. The new journey into self produced a shift in the definition of what the good life was. The good life was now about affluence and wealth, retirement packages, materialism, and self-expression, chief among them. The desires for personal freedom and autonomy were expanding rapidly. And into this climate, the evangelical emphasis on a personal relationship with Jesus that impacted a person's innermost being resonated with a culture's desire for that same kind of inner journey. Movements like the Jesus Movement happened in the 70s. This is where we get the, um, the classic DC Talk album, Jesus Freak. Yeah, you guys know what I'm talking about. Uh, Jesus freak is what is a kind of a pejorative term that was labeled and levied towards the Jesus movement. In fact, I don't know if you guys knew this about the Jesus movement. It was a sort of a mini revival in which the leader of the movement started house churches that were kind of loosely based on, on his teachings. And they were very serious about seeking God's presence and his spirit, but they weren't going to go into a like normal institution, a normal church. They wanted to seek another option. So we have the Jesus movement, the Jesus freaks. We also have the Billy Graham crusades really starting to take off here. And it further legitimated the need for an inward transformation that could only be found in Jesus. Now, these were what we would call alternatives to regular church. And this is what fueled what was coming next. So then we get to the 80s. 
And this will begin to do something interesting here. There's a contemporary church movement that begins to develop. Missionaries who were returning home to find the West looking as godless as the countries and developing nations that they had just come from were very concerned. And so what they did when they were on the mission field is they were looking for cultural bridges. They wanted to be able to tell the story of Christ to the people that they were speaking to in a specific way. So they looked for cultural bridges, similar stories that they could then bridge and have Jesus be the center of those stories. The problem was that in the West, our culture was not reverting back to paganism. And this is what many people misidentified. They thought that our culture was returning back to paganism, but instead they were evolving out of Christianity in a really interesting way. And I'll explain that more in a moment. So what happened was these missionaries come back. They, coupled with church growth strategists, look to the corporate world for ways to share the good news of Jesus in this new cultural landscape that we were finding ourselves in. So the contemporary church movement believed that relevancy could arrest the growing secularism that they perceived. Secularism is a suppression of religion and religious expression in the public sphere. And I'm going to throw out a lot of terms at you this morning, okay? Again, I told you this is a history and teaching lesson at the very beginning. Secularism was on the rise in the 80s. And so the church believed that if we can amp up our relevance, if we can look like our culture a little bit more, maybe people will come in. Now, the leaders of this movement, this uh, contemporary church movement, were the first great youth generation, do you guys know what generation that was? It's the baby boomers. The baby boomers were the first great youth generation. They were now in positions of institutional leadership, and they began to shape the church towards casualness and approachability. Again, the assumption was that people were tired of the traditional feel of church, and they wanted something less ritualistic and a lot more raw. Now we enter into the 90s and something interesting is starting to happen. The counterculture is taking sway. Do you guys remember Smells Like Teen Spirit? I'm not talking about the deodorant. I'm talking about the song, right? That's where that song title comes from, right? We, we, we see the counterculture, alternative rock and culture were beginning to sweep the mainstream. And now Generation X in control ramped up the relevance of their churches. And I have no better proof of that than my extreme teen Bible. You guys know what I'm talking about? <laughs> With like a skateboarder, you know, kicking, a, you know, doing a kickflip or I don't know what, rollerblader, you know what I'm saying? And every page on my extreme teen Bible had some extreme graphic to throw at you about what you were reading. And all of the, the um, conferences, uh, youth meetings, and even churches began to ramp up their elevant, relevancy. This is where you start to see the worship wars of the late 90s and early 2000s, where when people changed carpet and they put drums on stage, churches split. The, in the 90s is a very interesting thing that begins to happen. But what was happening subtly while the church was maybe not seeing or perceiving was that there was a cultural shift occurring. The church was no longer seen as a respectable institution. 
Instead, Christianity was seen as narrow-minded at worst and at best, just another option for life. That's your thing, it's not my thing, and I'm glad for you, but don't harp on me with your religious talk. So through the 90s, the church culture deeply enmeshed itself in the cultural modes of our day in order to gain more currency and capital, again, because we thought culture was going back to paganism, so we're trying to speak to them in a way that they can understand. So to ease people who now largely have a postmodernistic, I'll explain it, framework for truth, which means that you can create your own truth, church became less liturgical and more natural, right? And as evidenced by what I look at even in the crowd this morning, very few of us will wear a suit and jacket or a, a, a proper dress. You get what I'm trying to say, a proper dress, right? Now, I think a lot of that was good moves, Church doesn't need to be about your external actions. It needs to be about your heart connected with Jesus and with others. right? So a lot of that was a good move, but what ended up happening is that relevance became the most important thing. Now, what was happening in the culture was that a new civil religion was emerging, the religion of tolerance and progressive values. Thus, within Christianity in the West, a whole new posture emerged, one that attempts to be more inclusive, more conversant, and more tolerant. And while much of this was good, this move occurred simultaneously with the culture becoming more and more prepared to condemn, judge, and speak in the language of right and wrong. The church said, we want anybody and everybody to come in, Again, a great move, but while that was happening, our culture became more and more attuned to that's not good, that's right. You get what I'm trying to say. And the language became more mm, religious, if you would, in its vocabulary. So now into the 2000s, we find the church in the West in a very curious spot, ever pushing for relevance while receiving less and less payoff People of all ages are leaving the church in droves. It seems that as the church became more cultured, the culture got less churched. And now we're seeing the church enter into a minority within our culture and within uh, just plain numbers and math. Now, in America, we're not there yet, so take a breath. We're not there quite yet in America, but I'll tell you this, that is the trend that's happening. In countries like Australia, In the UK, this is already where they have been for 20 plus years, in a small minority. Church people are seen now as a part of the problem rather than having the solution. Church people are seen as increasingly irrelevant because of our positions on sexuality and abortion, marriage, morality, you name it. This coupled with the quiet an insidious marriage of republicanism and cultural Christians has pushed our currency to zero. Evangelicalism is now more synonymous with voting than an identifier about what one believes about the importance of sharing the gospel. No more poignant is that than now there's this new movement called ex-evangelicals. I just saw that in the news this past week. There's now, there's now a group of people called ex-evangelicals because they no longer want to be identified with what has now become, what at least seemingly, what evangelicals are all about. Now, why should we want to know how we got here? Or rather, should we want to know? I think we should. 
Why are people leaving? Why is there less and less staying power for our youth and middle-aged people? Don't just yell at the millennials and the Gen Zs. The next largest demographic of people who leave the church in droves are middle-aged people. Young baby boomers and late Gen X. Did you, did you guys know that? I wonder if that surprises anybody in the room. Because again, millennials love avocado toast and ruin the economy. I, I get it, right? <laughs> I get that that's what we do. However, the next largest demographic of people who leave the church are middle-aged people. Why does it feel like we're losing ground? The cultural force of our day, they operate from a soft power. Um, direct power would be the opposite. It's where you hold a gun to somebody and you say, believe this way or I'll send you to the gulag. Right? That's, that's direct power. Uh, you have to do what I say or you're going to jail or I kill you. That's direct power. Our culture operates at a very different level. It's a soft power, an indirect uh, sort of influence. It won't attack you, but it will subtly coax you. This is really important to understand. The soft power of our culture um, and its beliefs are not so much argued, but assumed. They are not enforced, but imbibed. At an almost subconscious level, the influence of our culture creeps into our deeply held belief systems without us having checked them against any mental filter at all. Therefore, we are formed by them to believe a script about ourselves. You guys know what a script is? It's when you hand something that you want an actor to play. I want you to say these words. I want you to feel those emotions. I want you to act this role out as if you are that role. That's what a script is. And our culture is forming us to believe a script about ourselves, about what the good life is and about how we should best do our own self-expression, about what right and wrong really is. And all of this is happening without us really knowing where these beliefs are coming from. This soft power is guided by postmodernism. Now, postmodernism very simply says that there is no more grid for truth. There's no more paradigm to what truth is or isn't. Whereas before, before postmodernism took hold, people understood that truth happened around these parameters. There was a paradigm to it all. Now, in postmodernism, the phrase, I'm going to speak my truth is very relevant, and it perfectly sums up their position. It is the fuel for where we find ourselves presently in a post-Christian society. Now, let me define post-Christianity for you, and you tell me if this sounds incorrect to where we find ourselves in this cultural moment. Number one, the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. Number two, traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or altogether destroyed. Number three, the world will inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. Technology, in particular, the internet, will motor this progression towards what? Utopia. Now, what's so interesting in the study that I'm doing is that both the conservatives and the liberals 
do believe at a deep level that if I can give, so the conservatives think if I can give enough personal freedom and autonomy to people, we'll make the world a better place and we'll strive towards utopia. The liberals think that if I have more governmental oversight, then I can produce utopia. What's so interesting and insidious about this post-Christianity thing is that they're both shooting for the same thing from different directions. Number four, the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. I love that sentence. I pulled this out of a book, by the way. I didn't come up with this, right? Uh, This is fantastic. Mark Sayers, by the way. I'm going to recommend some books during the series. Therefore, social justice is less about economic or class inequality and more about issues of equality relating to individual identity, self-expression, and personal autonomy. So if things happen out there, whatever. It doesn't bother me. I'm carving out my niche, and I'm just fine where I'm at. And in fact, don't bother me with all this bad news. I'd rather watch just good news. And in fact, I don't even watch the news anymore. I just rather would sit on Netflix and watch The Office over and over and over and over again. Number five, humans are inherently good. And with more education, more understanding, more tolerance, more listening, we can improve ourselves both personally and culturally, societally. Number six, large-scale structure and institutions are suspicious at best and evil at worst. And I would even say evil most likely. Number seven, forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is lauded. That means praised. It's the one thing that you're looking for. External authority is rejected. Post-Christian culture attempts to retain the comforts of faith while gutting it of its costs, commitments, and restraints that the gospel places upon our individual wills. Post-Christianity intuitively yearns for the justice and shalom of the kingdom of God while defending the reign of the individual will. It's the insidious serpent once again whispering to us, you can be like Post-Christianity is Christianity emptied of its content. So why are so many leaving the church? Why is the American church and Christianity in the West seeing a slip into the minority of opinion and influence? Well, through the end of the 19th century into the 1960s, and I'll explain some more of this on the podcast this week, but through the 1960s, liberal Christians were in charge of institutions of learning and prominence coming out of the Enlightenment. We have a new hyper-rationalistic way of viewing the world, and everything must be questioned, including the Bible's claims about truth and who Jesus was. So liberal Christians say, Jesus is not really a deity, he's not God enfleshed, he is actually just a good teacher, and we can't even really prove if he was actually a historical person, but his stories are really great, and he's probably a good guru to follow. Scripture is no longer the highest authority, but a authority among others. The miracles are probably not real, because we don't see them. How could that possibly happen? In fact, we have science now that can tell us much better how things actually exist in the world. Liberal Christianity was in, in, in prominence 
in places of learning and in institutions of importance. And so, essentially, many denominations capitulated to the culture for the sake of relevance and began to bloodlet believers. And now for decades, mainline denominations have been seeing a steady decline. Well, the Christians that they formed, these liberal uh, churches, the Christians that they formed, do you think they stayed in the church? They didn't. But here's the thing. They didn't just leave and become avowed atheists who oppose the church and hate everything about you know, their early lives when grandma or mom or whoever would bring them to church. They didn't just jump into a sea of atheism. No, they left the church to become polite, moral people, armed with a fuzzy theology that guarantees heaven for good people, thinks Jesus is a cool teacher, but all religion is really bad, reframe sin as mistakes or only external to me. I don't have to ask for forgiveness. I've done nothing wrong. And hell as an archaic scare tactic. If the transcendental elements of faith are ignored or softened, if sin is recast as purely unenlightened attitudes, if evil is viewed as out there, existent only in structural forms, if the hope of the kingdom is reimagined as achievable through activism and sound political policy, if a culture exists within the church of Christian self-hatred where we shoot at one another around very strange doctrinal issues that shouldn't really matter that much like we see on Twitter every single day. It is only a matter of time before one discovers there are moral, happy people outside the church who are spiritual and they wish for a culture of fairness and inclusion just like I do. One day the penny drops and one wonders if they can still have what they value about their faith without all the restrictions and prohibitions of creedal, communal Christianity. So in a twist of real irony, the church's well-intentioned strategies for relevance and growth produced a shallow soil in which people's roots never deeply formed. Welcome to church. That's a lot to absorb, and I understand that. And we'll, we'll talk some more about this, and I have about four books to recommend to you on topics like this. But before we begin to talk about the title of our series, which is Root Work, we need to understand our cultural moment. I need to problematize where we are, the very air that we breathe, because we are under immense pressure from our culture every single day. This pressure is actively forming us into someone and something. The mantra is, you can make yourself into whoever you want to be. So we're really forming ourselves into our own images. And once again, the serpent whispers to us, you can be like God. You just have to stretch your hand out and do for you. Whatever we value, consciously or not, will be the ways that our hearts, minds, and bodies are directed. Whether we know it or not, the stories that we tell ourselves, the actions we take intentionally and automatically are being formed by the very cultural air that we breathe. When you're bored, what do you reach for? Who's, who's above like the age of 30 in the room? There was a time when you could not do this, was there? And you actually had to look at people in the face and talk to them. 
man, how boring were we? <laughs> I'm just kidding, we weren't. Right? Like, we're formed by this, and it's intuitive now for us to reach for the things that calm our anxieties and calm that awkward feeling that we might feel while we're sitting with other people at a dinner table or in line waiting for something. We are unconsciously and consciously formed by the cultural air that we breathe. Post-Christianity is the default mode of the West. The soft power of post-Christianity has produced lazy, ineffective Christians who feel good about faith while never really living it out. Now, I want to say this. Our cultural forces are not a power in and of themselves. It's fueled and directed by the powers, the principalities, and the elemental spiritual forces that Paul will talk about in the New Testament. And let me say this, culture is not just a thing that exists out there. We are a part of it. Culture is a group of people who in systems work together. So when we see something occur on the news, we then talk about it and we give our opinions, or when some event occurs within our reach, we then talk about it, express what's going on, and this is what produces and builds culture. So something is happening behind the scenes, though. It's not just all humans, right? Our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. I'm going to head myself. Let me read that passage, Ephesians 6, 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul also says in Colossians 2.8, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. These powers, these elemental spiritual forces, they are demonic forces, who are opposed to God. Who else are they opposed to? Christians, and I would even take it further, all of humanity. Demonic forces want to see all of humanity burn. What is the devil's chief aim? He's come to kill, steal, and destroy. You guys know your scripture. This is exactly what the demonic forces are after. Not only are they opposed to God, they are opposed to God's partners, you and I. They are opposed to the image bearers who look like God. They want to see our destruction through a life that is deformed. A deformed life is one in which your highest goal is yourself. Your appetite your comfort, your security, your wealth and prosperity, your friend network, your routine, your possessions, and your influence all end in one place, more and more of you. The demonic forces want to help convince you that you must make yourself into your own image. They want to disconnect you from your true purpose of being God's image bearers, reflecting Jesus to the world. They want to employ basic worldly philosophies and wisdoms to push you towards individualism on steroids, what we would call autonomy, where no one and nothing can say anything to me because I am self-made. I will be my own God. Once they are reclaiming your original design to be like God and to do for him in the world, will be thwarted. And the foggier and less clear your theology and practice of faith, the better. This is where we live. 
This is our culture, and without God, this is who we are. And I know that there's some rugged individualists in the room who are like, not me. You know, never me. I'd never be influenced. Yeah, you would, because you look at Facebook just as much as the rest of us. And did you know that there are um, uh, uh, algorithms that know specifically when and how to target you in order to send you to buy the right thing at the right moment? Do you guys know that? It's wild. So you think you're in control, but really, there's a big computer that's in control. And it knows exactly at 5.30 when you normally get on Facebook and begin to scroll, it knows exactly when to show you the thing that you just talked about at lunch. It's listening. (laughs) All of it. It's wild. And this is who we are without God. Now, I want to lay out the rest of the series in some broad strokes and tell you that even though things are absolutely bleak, with our God, there is always hope. Amen? Amen. So what we need to be is reformed. Christ came to earth to save us from our sins, free us from these elemental spiritual forces and powers, and show us a way to be truly human. Through his life, his burial and resurrection, he gave us the blueprints for a deeply formed life in God's presence. While our culture promises us happiness and wholeness and comfort and a truer self, all you have to do is peer inward and you'll find the truth. Jesus actually delivers through faith in him. He renews our image-bearing vocation as true sons and daughters of the king. And now we have a real concrete identity that we don't invent and reshape every five minutes. His kingdom looks vastly different than what we would expect. Yet in his kingdom is real life. Real life in the now and real life everlasting. Jesus delivers on his promise of wholeness, of peace, of joy, of love, and of a true self partnered with Christ in the Spirit. So what we need most is not more programs. It's his presence. What we need most is not relevancy, although that's good because we do want to introduce people to what we're about And the best way to do that is to have excellent things like this wonderful carpet and this great screen and all this great stuff that's happening, right? We we, we need to be excellent in what we do, of course, absolutely. But more important than that is being connected to the source of life, which is Jesus Christ. So we'll spend the next several weeks talking about what it means to strive for personal renewal as we adopt new practices and rules of life, engage with our inner lives. Did you know that you're an iceberg? About 10% of you lives above the surface. Right? About 10% of us lives above the surface. And what we project to the outside world is not really what's going on in the 90. There's about 90% of us that happens here and here. And we need to actually examine that. Now, not navel-gazing, because navel-gazing puts us in a loop that we can never break out of where either I'm awesome or I'm terrible. And Christ says you're neither. He says you're mine. And so we need to partner with God to look at ourselves in a very deep way. We need to examine our inner lives. We need to learn how to abide in God's presence more and more. And we need to start to contend for new 
passionate, spirit-filled lives. Our goal will be to peer inward with Christ and allow him to reform us at our roots. Root work before fruit work. Now, I wish I coined this phrase. I didn't. I got it from a book called The Deeply Formed Life by a pastor in New York named Rich Velotis. I highly recommend it. Root work before fruit work. We cannot expect personal fruit if we have not rooted ourselves in God's presence, in his word, and in his mission. Now, the psalmist uses the imagery of a tree to describe what a righteous person rooted in God actually looks like. Let's look at Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Okay, David's Bible was the law, so we need to understand that what David is showing us here and what we need to think about is that we need to be reading the scriptures. We need to be delighting in God's word. And this person meditates on his law day and night. When they do that, verse 3, that person is like a tree planted in the desert. No, planted by streams of water where there's always access to the source of life. And what will happen when that is occurring is that they will yield fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. A righteous person is like a tree planted by streams of water. We must be like trees rooted in God's presence. The tree produces fruit all the time or in season? Y'all tell me. In season, we must be like trees who instead of striving to produce fruit in every single moment, instead abide and produce when the season is right. Who changes the seasons? God changes the seasons. Y'all are following my metaphor now. Paul's, or sorry, David's metaphor. God changes the seasons, but are you able to perceive it? This is a great question for us. God will change the season, but we have to be ready to perceive when that change is occurring, which means that we first have to abide with him, just like the tree storing nutrients, storing the potential for growth, so that when the seasons change and the fruit is ready to be produced, we are also ready to partner with God. So what this means is that our priorities need to change. Yes, hard work for the Lord, absolutely, but only after you've spent time with him, only after you've been in his presence. Also, not every season is fruitful because you don't produce the fruit God does. We all need to get on his timetable and allow him to change the seasons and produce the fruit that he wants to see within us. Jesus um, calls us to this kind of life as well, one in which we abide before we go. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. That means he refines. He changes it subtly, moves your viewpoints, 
teaches you a new thing, that you would see the world in a new way. He prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Verse 4, remain in me, abide, some versions will say. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Do you think he cares about remaining in him? I mean, he said it like 15 times in a sentence. Because this is what Jesus wants us to be. Because fruit is a result of the root. When we abide in God's presence, we will experience renewal. Let me tell you what renewal actually is. Here's the definition. Growing in mindfulness and intentional connection with God. That's what renewal is. Renewal is connection to God. From there, we will become conduits of his presence where his life expresses itself in ours and then gets passed on to others as we intentionally do and partner with the Spirit. Now, there have been significant moments in history where God, through a small group of people, individuals sometimes, has sparked renewal. And that renewal then led to revival. Now, not the kind of revival that your church plan once a year with passionate preaching. Listen, I'm not, I'm not dogging that either. That's a great thing. But I'm talking about true revival, where individual renewal goes viral. Moments like the first and second great awakenings, the Welsh revival, the Pyongyang revival in Korea, and many more in the 17th through the 20th centuries. Those revivals were a result of men and women of God tired of their cultural promises and personal sin, bending their knees in prayer. Through confession, through repentance and conviction, they contended with God for a fresh new outbreaking of his spirit and his presence within the world. The lasting effects of their, of their faithfulness are still felt to this day. The reason that Australia has the gospel is because Wesleyan, Methodist, horse-riding missionaries went and preached. And they experienced Revival. Did you guys know that Australia was a convict country? In fact, like its governing documents say that we are a secular country. Very, very much opposed to like our governing documents. You get what I'm trying to say? Where God's kind of all over the place. And, and yet, revival took place in Australia because of one person, Wesley, spending time, hours in his office, on his knees in prayer, contending for God's spirit to break out. Do you know what it means to contend for something? It means to fight, to stretch, to move. It means to do something. These people contended for God's presence to break out in a brand new way. And what they did is they focused on the roots. And when we will do that, we will allow God to dictate when and how we go when and what we do, rather than going forward and forgetting to ever attach God to our missions in the first place. And in fact, when it becomes our mission, we've got a problem. When it's our mission and not God's mission, we're in trouble. The reality is that you and I cannot make God's mission happen. You and I cannot produce renewal, and we definitely don't produce revival. God alone does all of it. We must only prepare ourselves through the process of root work. What would renewal look like in your life? What would intentionally abiding in God's presence produce in your day-to-day? 
What would constant connection and partnership with God look like for you? Imagine your life refreshed and renewed by God's presence, where he feels as close as your skin and as present as your thoughts. Imagine having a deep inner life where your actions and reactions were constantly filtered through the truth of God's word. Imagine the sense of purpose and intentionality you'd feel when engaging with friends and family and coworkers and neighbors. Imagine a rested and content life where worry and anxiety become moments of connection with God rather than a constant and steady weight that you bear under. Imagine your prayer, Bible reading, and discipleship groups less as a chore and more as moments to grow your roots in his presence and contend with other faithful disciples who want to see God move. Imagine engaging your world for truth, justice, and the American way. That's a Superman quote, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. Imagine engaging your world for truth, justice, and the gospel, because your roots produce the fruit. Imagine what this life could look like. I'm almost done. I promise you, I've got just a little bit left here. Here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to imagine this kind of life. I want you to begin to think about your priorities and what's important to you right now. Here's what I don't want you to do. God, I'm going to get rid of all these things and I'm going to be so good for you. That's, that, that doesn't go anywhere because it's all based upon your will and now it's all about you once again. It's not about what you get rid of for God. It's about how much you connect with him in his presence. So here's what I want us to do this week. I want us to consider deeply praying every day for God to renew us in our inner man. We want to be changed in our innermost parts because when that occurs, God will begin to use us in new, exciting, fresh ways. And I think I'm not alone up here when I say I want to be used by God and I want to experience his presence in a new way. And I want to see gifting come out of me for the benefit of this body and the larger body out there. I hope I'm not alone in that. Here's what I know as well. That this is not for the timid and faint of heart. This is for what the prophets will call the remnant. The remnant are those who stuck by God no matter what. They were always few. They were always the minority. Just because lots of people go to church on Sunday does not mean they are truly biblical Christians. In fact, the stats for America would show that less than 10% are. Did you know that countries like Kenya produce 38% resilient disciples who have biblical worldviews? America produces 9.8. So who should we be learning from? Who should really be the loudest voice? This is, this is my point, is that to become a remnant, we have to contend with God for renewal first. We have to contend with God for his presence to be within us first. If I don't start there, then I miss the whole game in the first place. 
And then what I start doing is I start becoming um, a strategist like we saw, like I told you from the 90s and 80s, where I start to invent programs and ideas and new ways of doing things, and all the while I miss God. You can go to your discipleship group and still miss God. Did you know that? You can go to church all you want and still miss God. Now listen, he is directed towards you for his glory. And he wants your heart. He wants to partner with you. Are you willing to partner with him? And this is the question that we all need to consider this week. We need to begin to contend for renewal. We have a promise from scripture that if we will draw near to God, he will draw near to us. So here's what I'm going to do for the next several minutes. I want to pray. Imagine. Imagine starting off our series in a time of prayer. Well, because this is how we actually do battle with those elemental spiritual forces because our fight is not against flesh and blood but against the principalities and powers that are influencing us all the time. The first step is to recognize where we are and who we are without Christ. The next step then is to contend for renewal and his presence. Finally, we will start to see God use us and move us as we see differently and seek what he is after. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Remember that this is one of the places where God's presence has decided to to dwell, in me and in you individually, but also in this body. Imagine God's presence being here right now. What I want you to do is just take a deep breath and focus your mind on the reality that he is here. The spirit is here with us. We don't have to call him down. We don't have to do goofy stuff in order to make him be here. We are filled with his presence if we believe in him. He is your father. He loves you. He is nearby. Focus on his closeness and his nearness. Father, I'm going to spend a moment in lament. I know that you hear our prayers, and my prayer is one of frustration. I am tired of the scripts and the stories that our culture tells to each one of us. I am tired of my own inability to seriously seek you for often more than a moment. I'm tired of my own sin. I am burdened by the trend of people leaving the church to never return. I'm heartbroken that the demonic powers have so blinded us to not look inward and evaluate our lives, the scripts that we believe that often go against your word. And I am heartbroken for those who will never know your grace and love because I will not act. Spirit, begin to help us examine our hearts. Help each one to start looking inward. Help us to truly engage with our attitudes, with our actions and our emotions, and also our feelings. Help us to measure ourselves not against our culture, but against you and your word. Father, I pray that we would reach the end of ourselves. Help us to see that there is no lasting peace, no joy, no wholeness in the promises of our culture. Help us to be broken instead over our sins. Push us closer to you as we recognize our total need 
and dependence on you and your grace. Help us to trust you, but also convict us. Move us to a discontentedness with where we are now so that you can change us and renew us. Father, I want to see revival. I want to see your power go out from Cornerstone and your church through your people. And I want more of your presence and I want to be renewed. Would you fill each of us with your passion, with your presence, and with your purpose? Light a fire within each of us. Raise us up as those who are truly contending for your presence. Let us not be idle people of comfort. Instead, help us to enter into your mission of filling the world with your presence. Spur us on to love and good deeds as we honestly seek you. Don't let me be mediocre and passive any longer. Don't let us be mediocre and passive. Instead, fill us with courage and with boldness to face our inner lives and our culture with your love and truth. Go before us and prepare for us a way. We stand in the truth that you are Alpha and Omega, the author and perfecter, author in us, a movement of renewal, and write a story of passion and mission for you. Help us to be reliant on you and you alone. Give us zeal for your name and passion for your glory. Direct us to your heart. Father, confirm in us that you love us. And while our culture is bleak and while our sin is a problem, you accept us all the same. Help us to live in that truth that we don't have to be perfect, but we have to be in pursuit. So help us to be in pursuit this week. Help us to imagine our lives connected to you. We want to know you more. We want more of your presence. We want more of you in this world. Help us to identify places in our own lives where we need your gentle touch. Change us, renew us, make us more like you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here's how I want to end today, finally ending, is I want to recite the Lord's Prayer, and I want you to keep focus on what Jesus calls us to to ask for from the Father. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want us to make that our prayer this week. Would you stand with me as we recite these words together? Make them your prayer today. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. Let me send you off with a benediction today. 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. We love you. Look forward to next week. You are dismissed.